Good morning, Grace. Take your Bibles to he- and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Um, the good news is that we made it out of verse 2. We're moving on to verse 3 today, but we're only going to be looking at the first nine words of verse 3. That's all we're going to cover today. But I don't think you'll be let down by that fact because the nine-word phrase that we're going to look at today, he is the radiance of the glory of God, is also full of so much goodness. It is also oozing with much theology, just like the phrases that we have looked at over the past few weeks. And the gospel that shines out, pun intended, from this phrase, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The gospel that shines out from that phrase is this. The God we enjoy is not in essence a lawgiver, but a lover. The Trinitarian God that we enjoy, that we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not in essence a lawgiver, but a lover. Now, this should not surprise you because of what we've seen over the last few weeks. In eternity past, God the Father was loving his Son, Jesus, in and through the Holy Spirit, God was loving before he ever gave the law. God was loving before he ever created anything, before he was ever ruling over anything. That means then that God in his nature, his very essence is love, not law. It's love, not rules to keep. That's the gospel that will shine out of our passage today. So look again at Hebrews chapter 1. We'll go back and read those first few verses, which you should have memorized by now. Hear the word of the radiant God that we serve. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So what does it mean that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God? What do those words mean? When Christians hear and read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, I think sometimes we think, well, of course, yes, he is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. But I'm not so sure we know what those words mean. I'm not so sure that we know what it means that Jesus is radiant. I'm not so sure that we know what it means that God is glorious. I mean, to be sure, we say that we do things for God's glory. We say that we want to glorify God. We say it in our mission statement here at Grace, that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. But do we really know what it means? Do we really know what it means to glorify God? Is it just Christian lingo that you kind of pick up after a while? I hope to clear up some of that murkiness today. And I can't do it on my own. I'm going to have to rely on a few dead guys to help me. So I'm going to bring in some church history this morning. I'm going to bring in some dead guys and quote a lot of dead guys today. Why? Because dead theologians are the smartest theologians. 
So to understand what it means that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, I need to let Gregory of Nyssa explain Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 to you. Gregory of Nyssa was a theologian in the 4th century. He was one of the Cappadocian fathers. Uh, he and Basil of Caesarea and Gregory of Nazianzus, they helped the church to defend the doctrine of the Trinity in the 4th century. And so Gregory of Nyssa said this about Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, talking about the connection between a lamp and the light that it puts forth. He said this, We may learn that as the light from the lamp is of the nature of that which sheds the brightness and is united with it, for as soon as the lamp appears, the light that comes from it shines out simultaneously, so in this place, in Hebrews, the apostle would have us consider both that the Son is of the Father and that the Father is never without the Son. For it is impossible that glory should be without radiance, as it is impossible that the lamp should be without brightness. So Gregory of Nyssa is saying that just as the presence of a lamp brings light with it wherever it goes, and you can't separate the light from the lamp, so it is with God. Jesus and the Father are one. You cannot separate them. Jesus is the radiance of God the Father's glory. So where you see one, you see the other. As Jesus said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus came to reveal God the Father to us. So Jesus is the radiance. He is the brightness of the glory of God. That means that God the Father shines forth in his son, Jesus. And the Father is never without the Son. And the Son is never without the Father. It is impossible for them to be apart just as it is impossible to separate a lamp from the light that it puts forth. They are always together. And we see a picture of the beautiful relationship between God the Father and his son, Jesus, even in the Old Testament. We see it in the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember where the nation of Israel kept the Ark of the Covenant? It was kept in the Holy of Holies, that back room in the tabernacle and that back room in the temple that Solomon eventually built. And it was the place where the high priest would only go once a year to make atonement for the sins of the nation. This is where God lived on earth, if you will. We'll hear about more about that later in the book of Hebrews. But what was kept inside the Ark of the Covenant? If you know your Old Testament history, Aaron's staff that budded and blossomed and the urn full of manna that they collected and also the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments on each of them. We'll talk about that in Hebrews 9.4. Now, there's debate about whether or not the staff and the urn full of manna were actually kept inside the Ark. Some people think they were kept in front of the Ark. Won't, Won't go into detail on that right now. But we do know that by the time of Solomon... Only the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments were inside the ark. Now, what is significant about the Ten Commandments, the law, God's word, being inside the ark, inside the Holy of Holies? Why keep the word of God inside the ark, inside the Holy of Holies? Here's why. By keeping the Ten Commandments in the ark, 
God, Yahweh, was teaching the nation of Israel the central truth that the word of God belongs in the presence of God. God was teaching the world that God's word belongs in closest proximity to God. God's word, God's law, the Ten Commandments belong in the presence of God. And that's because the Ten Commandments teach us and reveal to us who God is. The Ten Commandments are an expression and a revelation of the moral character of who God is, his holiness, his righteousness. So the Ten Commandments, or literally in Hebrew, they're the Ten Words or the Ten Sayings. The Word of God, the Ten Commandments, belong in God's presence because it reveals and radiates forth who God is. Now, you fast forward to the New Testament and how does John describe the coming of Jesus in his gospel? He describes the coming of Jesus in a very similar way as the preacher of the book of Hebrews. John 1.1, which many of you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is telling us that Jesus is the word of God, that, that he is God. He was with God in eternity past, and he has always been with God. He's God. He came from the glory of the Father to shine forth the light and glory of the Father in order to make God the Father known. Jesus came to display the innermost reality of who God is. Love. The word came from the deepest closeness with the Father. He came from the Father's presence in order to reveal God, the Father in his essence, and that he is a God of love. Now, contrast the Trinitarian God of Christianity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Contrast the Trinitarian God of Christianity with Allah, the God of Islam. As we saw a few weeks ago, According to Islam, Allah was alone in eternity past. And one of his titles is the loving or the loving one. And we ask the question, how can Allah be loving if he is all alone in eternity past? He has no one to love, so how can he be loving? And we saw that to love is not to be alone. To love is to love someone, so Allah had to create people in order to be loving, in order to live up to one of his titles, the loving. Allah is dependent on creation, his creation, in order to be who he is, but not so with the triune God of Christianity. God the Father has been loving his son Jesus in and through the Spirit for all of eternity. So in eternity past, just like the Ten Commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was inside the Holy of Holies, in eternity past, Jesus, the Word, was enjoying close and deep fellowship and love with God the Father, but not so with Allah. Allah was alone. All that Allah had at his side was a book, the Quran. Now, according to Islam, Allah had an eternal word at his side, the Quran. Now, on the surface, it looks like Allah was not lonely because he had a book with him, but that's all it was, a book, not a person. 
And it was a book about him, a book about his wants and his wishes, just a book about him. There was no one for Allah to love in eternity past. All that he had in eternity past was a book. Now, I know what you introverts who love to read are thinking right now. That would be heaven. Me, all alone, no one to bother me, no one to talk to, and all I have with me is a good book, a book to read and enjoy by myself. Glory, glory, glory. And all the introverts said, amen. That was Allah in eternity past, living the dream of every introvert who loves to read. But when you read in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, the phrase that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, you see a picture of the Christian God who was not alone in eternity past. You see a picture of the Trinitarian God who reveals himself, not just through a mere book with pages, but through his word, through the word, through his son, Jesus Christ. So understand this, in Christianity, the word is not just a book. The word is not just a book with ink and pages and chapters and footnotes and a preface. The word is a person. The word is a person. Jesus, who has always been in God's presence. Jesus has always been close by his father, And so when God gives us his word, he doesn't just give us a book, he gives us himself. He gives us Jesus, his beloved eternal son, the perfect revelation of his father. He doesn't give us information He doesn't give us rules. He doesn't give us interesting tidbits about himself or what his idiosyncrasies are. He gives us Jesus. He gives us himself. That means then the God that we enjoy is not in essence a lawgiver, but a lover. God is love, 1 John 4, 16 says. Love is his essence. God is fundamentally love. Now, I know that makes some of us uncomfortable to talk about God being loving in his essence. It makes some of us uncomfortable because we're afraid that if we stress God's love too much, then we're on the fast track to liberalism And we're on the slippery slope of a social gospel and we throw obedience and holiness and sanctification out the window. That's what some of us think. We're afraid that if we stress God's love too much, then obedience goes out the window. So it makes some Christians uneasy to talk about God being love in his very essence. We're afraid that we'll get a mushy gospel if we start talking about God's love all the time. I think our default mode is to think of God as this supreme ruler who is as hard as nails. Like his default mode is to be cranky because nobody's keeping the rules. And so we envision God as this curmudgeon who only cares about the rules. Like before he is anything else, he is this cranky, harsh taskmaster who's mad at everybody. Because nobody's keeping the rules. 
But God is not first and fundamentally a lawgiver. He is first a lover. Before God ever gave the law to anyone, he was loving. Just as we saw several weeks ago, before God was the creator, before he was the ruler, before he had anything to rule over, he was a father loving his son in eternity past, in and through the Holy Spirit. So before there was anything to rule, God was loving his son. Before there were any rules to pass out, God was loving his son. So love came before the law. Even though the law is an expression of God's moral character, before he created, before he ruled anything, before he was a law giver, he was loving his son who was with him. And his great love for his son led him to send his son the word. So we serve a God that doesn't just happen to speak he doesn't just speak words. He doesn't just communicate, communicate to communicate. He is the word. And this is how Jesus fulfills and executes his role as prophet. He's our prophet, priest, and king. He is the word spoken. He is communicative. He reveals. He shares. He does not hoard. He moves out to others. So when we say that God speaks, we are saying that God expresses himself through his word, through Jesus the Son, which means that God is the ultimate extrovert. God is most alive when he is in community, loving and sharing and giving. And God has been in community within the Godhead for all of eternity. And as the greatest extrovert, God could not be a recluse. He must enjoy closeness with others. He must love others because he is love. And he must speak. He must communicate. And for all of eternity, God has been speaking through his word, through his son, Jesus. And he doesn't just speak information. God speaks himself. He gives himself. He gives us Jesus who is the radiance of the glory of God. So the, found, the fountain of God's love for his son brimmed over in the giving of his son for people like us. His love, his essence overflowed the banks. So Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, meaning he shows us what God the Father is like Jesus shows us that God the Father is love, that he is outgoing, that he loves to share the love that he has for his son with others, and Jesus is proof of that. Jesus is proof that the Trinitarian God is not an introvert. Jesus is proof that God is love. And that's why we must first see God as a loving father and not as a lawgiver or rule enforcer. And that's why John Owen, another dead guy I'm gonna bring in this morning, John Owen, one of the Puritan pastors and theologians said this, we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. 
We're never closer to Jesus than, we, than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. You will never be nearer or closer to Jesus than when you find yourself totally flabbergasted that he loves a rebellious sinner like you. You will never be nearer to Jesus than when you find yourself totally awestruck that he loves you. And when you do find yourself close to Jesus because you are overwhelmed at his love, then guess what? You'll want him. You'll want him. You'll desire him. He will be your treasure. He will be, as the psalmist says in Psalm 43, my exceeding joy. When you come to grips with his crazy, out-of-this-world love for you, you'll actually start enjoying God. Imagine that, enjoying God. Is that how you would describe your Christian life? I enjoy God. I love being with him. I love reading his word. How do you get to that place where you start enjoying God? You begin by being so overwhelmed that he loves someone like you. So God the Father sends his son, the word, because he loves and he gives and he shares and he does not hoard. And Jesus the son images forth the father in loving his elect people and giving his life for them and then sharing his life with them through the Holy Spirit. So when you hear the words Trinity, when you hear the word Trinitarian, when you hear the word triune, when we say that we serve a triune God, when you hear those words, you need to immediately think of a God who is love, a God who is not stingy, a God who does not hoard. When you read the words in Hebrews 1, 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, you should immediately think of a God who is love, a God who loves to love, a God who loves to share, and a God who loves to give. That's what it means that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is one with the Father, and he shines forth the Father, and he images forth the Father. Jesus reveals God the Father to us. He reveals to us the glory of God. He radiates the glory of God. So what is the glory of God? What does that even mean? What does it mean that God is glorious? The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and in Scripture it means weight. It means heaviness, weightiness, importance. It's like the hippies used to say in the 60s and 70s when somebody would wax philosophical, they'd say, whoa, man, that's heavy. That's the idea behind God's glory. There's heaviness, weightiness, depth, and importance. It's like the Beatles song, one of my favorite ones. It's a brilliant song. I want you, she's so heavy. John Lennon wrote that song for Yoko Ono, and he wasn't saying that she was overweight. He was smarter than that. Remember, this is the, this is the 60s when he wrote this, maybe early 70s. He was saying, you're so heavy. You're, you're, so, you're so important to me, Yoko. There's this weightiness, this heaviness about you, and I want you. You're mine. He was saying, you're deep, you're, you're important, you're meaningful. That's what the Hebrew word for glory means. There's heaviness, there's weightiness. 
Do you remember in 1 Samuel 4 when Eli heard that his two sons had died on the battlefield? It says that as soon as the messenger came, he mentioned the ark of God and Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. The word heavy there in 1 Samuel 4 describing Eli is the word for glory. It's the same word, kavod. So if your wife tells you that you're starting to put on some weight, just tell her that it's glorious. Tell her it's your, your glory. Say, my gut is my glory. I'm just trying to image forth God the Father here as I eat and expand and grow. Eli was heavy. He was fat, and they said it was glory. So the glory of God is his heaviness, his weightiness. It's who he is. It's his nature. God's glory is his importance. He's the most important person in all the universe. So when we say that we exist as a church to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything, we don't mean that we are making God glorious. We don't mean that we inflate God or make him bigger. He is who he is. He is the infinitely glorious triune God, the weighty God, the heavy God. We don't make him anything. So when we say that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything, we mean that we exist to ignite a passion in you to ascribe to God who he is, to declare him to be who he already is as you enjoy him in everything that you do and everywhere that you go. As Psalm 29, 2, our call to worship that we read this morning says, ascribe to the, glo- the Lord the glory due his name, the weightiness due his name, the heaviness due his name. That's what it means to glorify God. You ascribe to him his weightiness. You ascribe to him his heaviness, his importance, who he already is. You say to him, I want you because you're so heavy. You don't make God anything. You don't make God glorious. You simply ascribe to him who he is. You ascribe to him the glory, the weightiness, the heaviness, the importance of who he is. So that's what it means for us to glorify God. But what is God's glory? What's his glory like? The answer, his glory is both a person and a light or a brilliance or a brilliant light. His glory is both a person and a brilliant light. We see this in Ezekiel 1 where God is described as both a person and light. Ezekiel chapter 1 verses 26 to 28, I'll read it. And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him 
like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking. So Ezekiel has this vision and sees God's glory, and he describes it as both a man having human appearance and also as a bright light. Now, we make the connection easily, I think, between Jesus and the God-man there, the human appearance and God's glory, but what about the bright light? How is the bright light the glory of God? How is the bright light the weightiness of God? How is the bright light the heaviness of God? Because we don't normally associate light with heaviness or weightiness. We don't normally describe light with words like heaviness or weight. Like somebody turned the lights on and it was, it was weighty in there. We don't normally talk like that. When we start a diet, we don't say things, I'm going on a diet because I need to lose some light. No, we want to lose weight because we think we're heavy and not light. But God's weightiness, God's heaviness, his glory is described as a brilliant light. And the Bible is full of verses that talk about the radiance of God's glory. So the essence of who God is in his nature, his weight is like a bright light, like the sun. And like the sun that gives life and warmth and heat and light, so too the Trinitarian God shines forth in brilliant light. Maybe we should let another dead guy share with us what God's glory is like. His name is Jonathan Edwards. Perhaps you have heard of him before. He was a pastor and theologian in the 1700s who's most famous for a sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But more than he talks about an angry God, he talks about a loving God in his works. Now, Edwards wore knickers and he had a powdered wig, so don't hold that against him. If he doesn't measure up to your idea of masculinity. But back then, it was masculine to wear knickers and a powdered wig. But he helps us to understand the glory of God. And here's what Jonathan Edwards said. The work of redemption, which the gospel declares unto us, above all things, affords motives to love. For that work was the most glorious and wonderful work of love ever seen or thought of. Love is the principal thing which the gospel reveals in God and Christ. The gospel brings to light the love between the Father and the Son and declares how that love has been manifested in mercy and how that Christ is God's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. God and Christ in the gospel revelation appear as clothed with love as being, as it were, on a throne of mercy and grace, a seat of love encompassed about with pleasant beams of love. Love is the light and glory which are about the throne on which God sits. The light and glory with which God appears surrounded in the gospel is especially the glory of his love and covenant grace. Love is the light and glory which are about the throne on which God sits. Edwards is saying that God's glory is his love. His radiance is his love. God's glory, his weightiness, his heaviness 
is love. God's radiance, his brightness is his love. And this just makes sense because Ezekiel also said that the glory of God had a human appearance, like a man, like a human being. And if Jesus reveals God's glory, and if Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, then Jesus reveals God's love. Jesus goes out from God the Father and he shows us what God is like. He is love. Michael Reeves says this, when we see that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, it becomes impossible to think that God's glory is something that is not about love. Through Jesus, the Father shows us his innermost being in the form of a servant dying to give his life. And it is as Jesus comes to us from heaven, making himself nothing, that he displays his glory. Astonishingly, the moment when Jesus finally reaches the deepest point of his humiliation at the cross is the moment when he is glorified and most clearly seen for who he is. On the cross, we see the glorification of the glory of God, the deepest revelation of the very heart of God, and it is all about laying down his life to give life. The glory of God is seen in Jesus, and it is seen most clearly at the cross. The glory of God, the weightiness of God, the heaviness of God, the radiance of God shines forth most brilliantly at the cross. The glory of God, the weightiness of God, the heaviness of God, the importance of God, the radiance of God shines forth most brilliantly at the cross when Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, according to Galatians 2.20. That's why we talk about Jesus all the time here at this church. It's why we are a gospel-centered church. It's why we are a cross-centered church. This is why we talk about Jesus living and dying for us all the time. And it's why that cross hangs right there in the center of the room in this sanctuary to draw our eyes to it every week. Why? Because it is at the cross that the glory of God shines the brightest. John Calvin, another dead theologian, said this. In the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all the creatures, indeed both high and low, the glory of God shines. But nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross. So when the preacher of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, he is telling us that God is love. He is telling us that God's love is his light and glory. He is telling us that the triune God made the world to share his eternal love with his creation. He is telling us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He is telling us that the God we enjoy is not in essence a lawgiver, but a lover. Please understand that. What is God like fundamentally and foundationally? Is he the creator or the ruler first? Is he first and foremost lawgiver? No. God is not primarily a lawgiver. God is not primarily one who lays down the law, who barks out a bunch of rules. He is first and fundamentally a father, a loving father. He is love. He is not first one who lays down rules, but one who lays down his life 
For from the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. And this was the struggle with the audience of the book of Hebrews. They were trying to return to the law in order to earn their salvation, in order to earn God's love, in order to earn God's favor. They're trying to be obedient in order to get God's love. They were losing sight of the radiating gospel that God is love first and foremost and that he proved that love by sending his beloved son to die for sinners. See, the Hebrews wanted rules to love. They wanted rules, give me something to do. And they lost sight of the ruler of the universe who is first and fundamentally a loving father before he is ever a ruler. Now, this does not mean that we don't need the law. This doesn't mean that we don't need direction. God's law teaches us how to please God. God's law shows us our sin and points us to his son, Jesus. So we need the law. We need to hear the law preached often so that its heavy demands make us despair and it crushes us and we run to Jesus. But it's Jesus we need the most, not rules, not law. And so here's the application for you. If you view God first and foremost as a lawgiver, then that's how you will relate to him. You will always be trying to keep the rules in order to please him, in order to get his favor, in order to get his love. If you view God first and foremost as a lawgiver, then that's how you will relate to him. You will always be trying to keep the rules in order to please him, in order to get his favor, in order to get his love. You'll always be trying hard to make sure you stay in line instead of enjoying him as he is a loving father. Before the foundation of the world, God was not a lawgiver. He was a father loving his son in the spirit. That is who God is essentially. And seeing God that way will change everything about your Christian life. Viewing God as essentially love, a loving father, and not first a rule maker or lawgiver will change everything about your Christian life. It will make you want him. It will make you desire him. It will make you long to be with him. Who wants to be with the ruler? If you have a choice between spending time with a loving father or a ruler, who are you going to go with? If you have... Choice between spending time with your lover, your spouse, your fiance, boyfriend or girlfriend, or standing underneath a speed limit sign, which one are you going to choose first? You're going to choose the lover. Let's close with some wonderful words. We have a couple more quotes from John Owen. He said, so much as we see of the love of God, so much shall we delight in him and no more. In other words, you want to delight in God, you need to see his love for you. Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from him. Anything you learn about God, if you don't understand first that he's a lover and that he loves you, it will make you run from him. But if the heart be once much taken up with this, the eminency of the Father's love, it cannot choose but be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. This, if anything, will work upon us to make our abode with him. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Exercise your thoughts upon this very thing, the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father, and see if your hearts be not wrought upon to delight in him. 
I dare boldly say, believers will find it as thriving a course as ever they pitched on in their lives. Sit down a little at the fountain and you will quickly have a further discovery of the sweetness of the streams. You who have run from him will not be able after a while to keep at a distance for a moment. It's God's love as a father that draws us to him, not his rules. I was thinking about this morning, think about President Obama's daughters, most powerful man in the world. Do you think they get up in the morning and think, my dad's president, I just wanna go hop in his lap and hug on him? No, he's their father, their daddy. Those girls, like we knew, you were our daddy before, a senator, a president, or anything else. You're our dad. My kids don't love me because they say, clean your room and feed the dog. They love me because I'm their dad, because there's a relationship. Now, what flows out of that relationship is, yes, there are rules, there are things to do, but they don't wake up in the morning and say, gosh, we love dad because he said, clean our room. (laughs) They love dad because he buys them donuts. (laughs) Love motivates obedience, not rules. Remember John Owen? You've heard me say it many times, be killing sin or what? It will be killing you. John Owen, who wrote the book on putting sin to death, the mortification of sin, this is what he said. A sense of the love of Christ in the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. You wanna kill sin in your life? You wanna be obedient? You look to Jesus laying his life down on the cross for you and that will spur true spiritual mortification. Not telling yourself and gripping with white knuckles and saying, I gotta obey, I gotta obey. It's his love that will draw you in. That's what the Hebrews needed to hear. The preacher of Hebrews was telling his friends what I wanna tell you as we close today. John Owen's words, sit down a little at the fountain and you will quickly have a further discovery of the sweetness of the streams. You who have run from him will not be able after a while to keep at a distance for a moment. When you begin seeing God as love, you'll want him, and you won't be able to stay away from him. You'll say, I want you. I desire you because you're so heavy, so weighty, so glorious, so loving. Let's pray. Father, unless your spirit does a work in our hearts this morning and causes our eyes to see the beauty of who you are as a loving father, loving your son in the spirit in eternity past, then nothing will happen, God. And so we ask you to open our eyes to see you as you are, a God who loves And as we bask in that love and drink the sweetness from the fountain of your love, would you cause us to be transformed for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.